Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Marino. He's one of the preeminent researchers on the Shroud of Turin. We'll be talking about his most recent book that he just published, and it's titled The 1988 C-14 Dating of the Shroud of Turin, a stunning expose. And I must say this, it's fascinating read. There's some interesting uh, politics in here, and I look forward to uh, talking about that. But uh, before we get started, I just wanted to tell a, a short story. And that is that uh, similar to Joe, it sounds like, but I remember just barely hearing the news about the radiocarbon testing that was done on the shroud and that it was announced and then it was kind of shown that the shroud may not be authentic. And, uh, and I kind of put tucked that away and, and I said, oh, okay, so it's not authentic or whatever. I didn't really worry about it. Uh, but about 10 years later, my brother gave me a book from Ian Wilson. Uh, the Blood in the Shroud, he said, Guy, you got to read this. It's fascinating. And uh, I started reading it. And really, from the first page, I, I was absolutely hooked. And, and actually, my book follows a lot of the uh, history that's in, uh, that's in the, uh, the Blood in the Shroud by Ian Wilson. And then uh, I, I was just uh, talking with a friend of mine. And uh, when I told him about uh, my book on the Shroud, he says, oh, I thought that Shroud was debunked as being fake. Didn't they do some testing on it? And, and then I had to say, no, but you know, I'm gonna be talking with the guy that really knows his stuff around radiocarbon dating, and that's Joe Marino. And so, uh, uh, and that actually is not why the shroud and its authentic authenticity should be debunked, but really why the radiocarbon testing should be debunked. And so uh, with that, uh, let me introduce uh, uh, Joe Marino and uh, let me give you his bio and then we'll get right to it. So uh, Joe Marino has a BA in uh, Theological Studies from St. Louis University. He is a long time, a long time uh, synonologist, and that means he studies the Shroud. He's researched and written and lectured extensively on the Shroud of Turin since 1977, which is actually before one of the major research studies that took place for the Shroud and right now he currently works at the uh, Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. So as early as 1977, a few years longer than me, but uh, he's been at it certainly a lot longer and a lot more in detail. He has been fascinated with, uh, with a book that he read. So similar to, uh, to my background. And since then he's been up uh, kind of just like me. 1997, he received a call from a Sue Benford and uh, she informed him of her spiritual insights about the Shroud. And after many, many uh, discussions, and I really want to hear about that with phone calls and emails about the Shroud, he, be he began to experience God in a whole new way. And he felt powerfully drawn to leave the monastery and pursue Shroud research and other spiritual paths behind, uh, with, uh, with Sue Benford. And uh, definitely looking forward to hearing more about that. So Marie, uh, Marino believes the shroud can be shown to be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. So he, uh, he and me, we, we are definitely believers that the shroud is the true and authentic uh, burial cloth. 
but that would only make it an interesting archaeological object in, uh, in his mind. And uh, he believes that there's actually a lot more important spiritual messages that it can bring. And as a former Benedictine monk and Catholic priest, Joe believes that organized religion has often depicted Jesus as an unreachable deity whose standards we can never reach. Well, with his work, he hopes to show that the shroud represents uh, more a more human Jesus, one who is someone we can not only approach, but as indicated in the Gospel of John, a person we can even surpass in doing great things. It is his hope and desire that their work uh, together uh, with Sue Benford can get this message across. And it is his belief that this is the destiny to which he has been called, which is why he's been given the passion he possesses for the Shroud. So with that, let me welcome uh, Joe and thank you so much for being, being here. So glad to have you. And uh, so let's get started. Um, uh, so say hello, maybe just uh, say a couple of words and then uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that backstory in 1977, what that book was and how you really got so involved and enamored and, and it drove your passion with the Shroud. Sure. Um, I was uh, born and raised um, Catholic, went to Catholic uh, grade school and high school. And um, I had never uh, been taught in school anything about the Shroud of Turin. Of course, I've learned uh, most most Catholics have, are familiar with the uh, story of the the Veil of Veronica, which is uh, not in the Bible. Some some people think it's actually in the Bible, but it's 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 part of Catholic tradition, but not actually in the Bible. And that story is that a woman uh, on the way to on Jesus's path to to the cross um, wiped his face, and there was an you know image found on that cloth afterwards. Um, and that's probably an etiological story, possibly um, generated to explain how we had a facial image on the shroud, which of course is a long cloth, but uh, Ian Wilson, among others, uh, believed that the, the shroud was folded, at least part of its history, so that only the face was showing. So we have a cloth and you got an image on it, how did it get on there? And so the, even the name sort of kind of gives a clue that it's probably a story because the name Veronica is made up of Vera icon, which means true image. So um, there's several different versions of that story. That's, you know, Veronica is her name in, in, in one of the, the, uh, the stories. So um, that's, that's something to consider. Um, so in 1977, I had become, um, well, shortly after high school, I guess I uh, kind of became agnostic. And, but in the mid to 70s, I started reading a lot about various religions and philosophy, not necessarily just Christian. And um, whenever I went to a bookstore, I would always go to the religions section first. So. It was uh, spring of 77 and I went to uh, a mall near my house and um, went to the bookstore and went to the religion section and saw a paperback that had um, just the facial image of Jesus from the shroud. That's This is the image that looks uh, lifelike. Now, and we can get into this later, but the what you see on the shroud with the naked eye is not the same as what you see when you take a picture of it. 
Uh, it's very indistinct to the naked eye, but when you take a picture of it on the negative, it becomes lifelike. So the shroud image itself is like uh, a photographic negative itself. But anyway, the face on the cover of the book, which was called, um, it was called the fifth gospel. And it asked, is this the face of Jesus Christ by uh, Thomas Humber? And I thought, well, this looks like interesting reading. So um, it was a short paperback, um, probably, I don't know, a little less than 200 pages or something, but um, I bought it, took it home, read it in one sitting, and was just absolutely fascinated with it. Now, this was before the Sturp team went over in 78 and, and gathered a lot of the information that, that suggested it was authentic. Um, but even at that point, it, it was well, pretty well known in Europe, um, uh, you know, in the 30s and 40s, where it really didn't become known in the United States until the late 70s when Sturp started uh, getting ready to, to go over to turn to study it. So I read the book in one sitting and um, was convinced just by the evidence that was available at the time that the shroud very well could be authentic. So I started uh, gathering articles and other books that I could get my hands on. There wasn't very much in those days, but um, I gathered what I could. And um, there was a shroud organization in the United States called the Holy Shroud Guild in uh, Esopus, New York, which had, had been there since I guess the 1950s. Uh, but a lot of people didn't know about it. I wasn't aware of it until I read this book. And um, I contacted them and got some slides and um, started writing the scientists and, and things like that and became more and more convinced the more I read that it was uh, probably authentic and uh, nothing has come along uh, since to convince me that that isn't the case. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agreed. Uh, um, although, uh, you know, certainly the uh, radiocarbon dating from uh, 88 uh, certainly slowed things down and I'm sure it, it put a, uh, a damper on, on things. Uh, and now your book, it primarily deals with that, uh, that April 21, 1988 uh, event. And uh, I really liked how you set it up with the, the build up to that and then the date itself and then the, you know, after that. Uh, but why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about the genesis of your book and what motivated you to write that and, and get all of the detail and, and what have you. Well, like I say, since because I had been familiar with all the other evidence of the shroud and was uh, pretty convinced that it was probably authentic, when the uh, carbon dating results came out in 1988 and said it was medieval, I just... You know, if I didn't know a lot about the shroud, I might have been like like you did. Just it's oh, it can't be authentic. But it was sort of like I just I just knew too much to accept that, uh, and I just felt in my bones that, um, you know, something had to be wrong with that C14 dating. And I was aware of a little bit of the politics beforehand, but I had no idea until I started uh, collecting, gathering, compiling the all the evidence that came out afterwards and how how chaotic and, and crazy the whole thing was. Um, so I knew that that something um, 
had to be wrong with that. And pretty soon I was getting so much information, I couldn't even keep it straight in my head. So um, in 2016, I decided to write a uh, three-part article, um, which is, is published on Barry Schwartz's um, shroud.com site. And then um, you mentioned I worked at, at a, I work at Ohio State. I'm actually retired now. Um, I retired in 2018 and started writing a lot of articles and stuff. And then, then I decided, uh, well, a co-author co of mine on one of my articles, um, not, not the three-part article, but another one, he's a retired NASA scientist. And um, he says, you ought to write a book about the, the C-14 um, affair. And I thought, well, I've already got a three-part article, which was like about 175 pages. I thought, well, you know, a good chunk of it's already written. So I think a book does need to be written. So I started expanding that and expanding it and um, ended up with 800 pages in the book. And I knew there would be more material after I published it. So um, I dedicated a page on my website um, for the overflow you know, my corrections, additions, etc. So um, I've got about 80 additional entries um, in, in that. And I also reproduce that. It's not only available on my website, but I also made a se separate supplement um, article on, on academia.edu mm -hmm. uh, for the overflow. And all of it's done in chronological order. As you say, I kind of give some back history of of how the the test was uh, requested by people over the years and the development of of new methods in c14 dating and and um, the meetings that uh, were held to try to decide uh, how and to best do that and um, unfortunately science got lost in the shuffle there were just uh, political agendas, agendas, egos, um, church politics, um, personality conflicts, and I've arranged it in, in chronological order. And you can kind of see a progression of mishaps that <laughs> started really before the testing. And for example, they in 1986, they had a three-day meeting in Turin to try to decide um, the best protocol. And they went through multiple protocols. And then on April 21st, even though they had a three-day meeting in 86 and to decide where, where the sample would be taken, et cetera, they spent you know one to two hours arguing and deciding where the sample would be taken. It was like they completely ignored the fact that they spent three days in Turin trying to figure that out before they got there. Um, you know, when STERP went over to Turin in 1978, they started preparing like a year and a half ahead of time. And they were very rigorous in their testing. Well, the the Italian authorities and, and the church authorities did not do a very good job of uh, coordinating all the efforts um, the expert said, whatever you do, don't take the, the, uh, sample from the lower left 
corner because it looks like that area may have been repaired and guess where they took the sample from the lower left corner where it was probably repaired which has led a lot to the uh, to the problems that we have nowadays um, so I just thought uh, the book was was really designed not for breezy type reading. It's it's you know it's kind of heavy stuff at times. But uh, I really wanted to do a reference type work to have all the available data that I could get my hands on um, to show how poorly done the um, the C14 test was actually done. And ironically, even after all that. They, they may have gotten fairly close to the date, 1260 to 1390, but it's another thesis of, of mine and, and my wife helped me on, the fact that we think that the sample that they used had been, had been repaired in the 16th century so that the corner that they uh, sampled was a combination of the original first century cloth and a later 16th century repair, which would possibly give you that 1260 to 1390 date. Right, right. And actually, uh, that brings up uh, a couple of interesting questions. And uh, um, uh, as I was doing research, uh, we you have the Port Claire sister, sisters that did the repair of uh, due to the fire damage out of the uh, Chambry church. And then uh, there was also a handful of references to a, a Father Valpre, who may have done uh, some repairs. And his repairs uh, were, uh, were, were the, the, the Poor Claire sisters, their repairs are, look like they're more obvious. They're more or less sewn in and big spots to fill in holes. And then they, uh, as I understand it, they added the Holland cloth behind it. Whereas Father Valpre actually tried to use this French weave method and and um, and and otherwise, tell us a little bit about uh, you know both of those or potentially other sources of where those repairs might have come from. Yeah, um, yeah. There's kind of a biz, big misconception about our theory in in that you know the the poor Claire nuns did do repairs uh, on the shroud in 1534, which was two years after the uh, 1532 fire that the tr is well known. They sewed in uh, the big patches uh, that that are very visible on the shroud. Sue and I did, do not think they were skilled enough to actually do what's called an invisible reweave. Um, but the shroud at the time was actually owned by uh, Margaret of Austria. Who was related to the to Savoy family, which you know had the shroud for hundreds of years before it was willed to the Vatican in the in the 1980s. Margaret of Austria had access to um, the best weavers in Europe, and we think that some some of the best weavers that she had access to were the were the ones uh, maybe one maybe more. Uh, actually probably did did the repairs on the shroud probably around possibly even before um, the fire of 1532 because you know those corners were were gone before before the fire anyway so it would, it would have been in need of repair even 
before the fire. So we think some um, a French weaver, possibly multiple ones, um, did the, the invisible French reweaving um, probably probably around 1530. She, in her will of, of 1508, um, she wanted to give a piece um, a piece of the shroud to one of the churches uh, that she was affiliated with. And um, she died in, I think she died in 1530. So we think it was possibly done. The repairs could have been done, um, you know, around the time of her death. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sebastian Valfrey, Father Valfrey did uh, some later repairs. Um, I, I would consider those relatively minor. I don't think he would have been uh, talented enough to do the um the inf- invisible reweave either and i think that they were just uh, minor adjustments and repairs mm. so now when when that reweave was done uh was it done with linen or was it done with uh with cotton or a mix of linen and cotton um it seems based on later scientific evidence it would seem that it was um done with a mixture of linen and cotton because cotton is easier to dye because mm. um not only do you have to add new cloth, but you have to make the color match. And linen doesn't um, accept dye as well as cotton does. So Ray Rogers, um, who was a chemist on the, the STIRP team, did find um, dye, uh, mordants, glues, um, a splice thread. Uh, he basically found things that you would find if if a repair had been in that area and he was rather shocked because he had accepted the uh, the night the uh, carbon dating results and then sue and i presented a paper in italy in 2000 saying that we believe that the area had been repaired well interestingly enough he was really the only one in the world at the time that could have proved or disproved it because as a, as the chemist on the STIRP team, he still had, uh, legally and appropriately, he still had shroud samples from the main part uh, of the cloth from 1978. He also had several threads from what is called the Reyes sample. Gilbert, Dr. R- Gilbert Reyes was a Belgian textile expert who was given a small sample um, in 1973 for textile analysis. And Rogers had some of those Reyes threads. Now the Reyes threads were literally right next to the area from which the shroud, the, the C14 sample in 1988 was taken. So when we proposed our theory, Rogers said, well, I've got samples from the main part of the cloth and I've got samples from the the Reyes sample. I can compare them and and disprove this in five minutes. So he he kind of he called Barry Schwartz up, who had published our paper and kind of gave him the riot act because because Ray Rogers thought it was was nonsense. He 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 said we we were part of the the lunatic fringe and um, he got out his microscope and and looked at the two samples from the two different areas and he was shocked to find that they were different and he called barry back up and was kind of sheepish and said i can't believe it i think they're right how funny how how interesting so um well 
you know, you mentioned the the whole process, and one of the things I really found fascinating with uh, with the, with your book was where to take the samples from, and I also like the control samples. Uh, and if you were to design that process, uh, what would you have uh, designed, uh, given you know what you've read and stuff like that, as to yeah. how to take those samples and then how to uh, how to then forward them on in such a fashion to the laboratories for uh, for testing? Yeah, well, they actually had. They don't have to get my opinion. They had actual experts that that said, you know, you need to take uh, um, multiple samples from multiple different spots on the shroud, and um, and given maybe they had originally they were going to take it from like three different spots on the the cloth and give it to several different labs. Well, it ended up they only took the one sample and only chose the three labs. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is with only one sample in one area, you cannot be sure yep. that it's representative of the whole cloth. And they were, you know, they were advised to take multiple samples. And the reason, basically the reason they took just that sample was that was it was already cut on because that's where they took the Reyes sample from and they thought well let's not deface the cloth any more than we have to so let's just take another sample from that area but that was a big mistake because you don't know if if that area had been repaired and there were there were known instances in which the shroud was repaired um and they they simply should not have taken it from that area and they did anyway there was it was just one mishap after the other and bad decision after bad decision yeah i was uh i was uh i i chuckled when i was reading it and i was like oh my i i couldn't believe it you know after they after they had a, had a, a methodology and a whole process yeah. and then the disguising samples with the egyptian cloth and coming from different centuries and and then um, you know, and then they didn't do that. They took it. Yeah. They took the three samples and cut, or the one sample, cut it in three, and then that's what they sent off. I was really, <laughs> I was, uh, I was, I had to chuckle about that. Yeah, and guess what? On the control samples, which are supposed to be uh, unknown by the labs, they told them the dates of the the samples yeah. beforehand. Yep. You don't. That's that's just bad science. The whole idea of controls is to see if the labs are accurate. You give them a sample that you know the date, but they don't. They give you the date. You see how accurate it is. Well, if you give them the dates beforehand, that's just an open door to to fudge the date data. Yep. yep. You know. And that's like, uh, you know, with drug testing, I mean, now certainly with COVID is the double blinds with the placebos and everything it, uh, that there's a whole reason and a whole methodology right. there to make absolutely certain that you can test then each of those labs to make sure they get to the, uh, to the right dates for, for the samples that they've got. Um, yeah, fascinating. The other thing that I really, uh, I don't know if I enjoyed it, but uh, I definitely found it interesting was the the different um the different factions that had a totally different interest in what may have come out of the the whole process mm -hmm. and and then the argumentation between the stirp group and then this and then archbishop 
uh, Bellastreros and then the Trondheim group and then Dr. Gove and whatever. I mean, there were there were so many different yeah. factions. Who do you who do you see as being uh, maybe the the top three or four factions in the whole thing as they to the lead up of the uh, of the testing? Well, um, Gove has to take kind of first place in terms of uh, of being the, the the driver of who ended up um, testing the shroud. Um, you know, Sterp obviously had all the experience. They proposed in 1984 doing 26 different tests on the shroud, including the carbon 14. So when they um, proposed those tests, this, <laughs> this is kind of funny. They put the tests in, in I think alphabetical order <laughs> and somebody got upset because carbon 14 wasn't one, the number one. And Sturp said, well, we didn't put them in order of a priority. They were in alphabetical order. So, you know, there were just miscommunications like that. Um, and Gove um, had was the co-inventor of the new method that was used on the shroud in 1988. It was called AMS, Accelerator Mass Spectrometry. And, you know, in the old days, you needed like a handkerchief size piece of the shroud, which is why they didn't do it in the earlier days, because they, you know, understandably didn't want to take a, a super large chunk to date it. But with the new method, you could use, you know, several threads. Um, but keep in mind that in 1988, the method they used was only about 11 years old at the time and was not why had had not widely been used on on textiles yet. Hmm. So it was still somewhat of an unproven um, method. So Gove was interested in kind of promoting this new method. And he thought that, well, why do all these other tests? Um, when if you we could do a carbon 14 and get the date and if it comes out medieval, that means the shroud's a fake and you don't have to do all these other 25 tests, which is, you know, it sounds scientific, but, you know, and carbon 14 is not infallible. The public has this idea that, you know, these labs do a date and they, it is accurate all the time. And if you, if you examine the literature, you find a lot of carbon 14 dates that are just wrong. Sometimes they don't even know why they're wrong, but they get tossed if they don't match with other evidence. But Gove thought that Sterp was a bunch of religious fanatics, which was not true. Uh, the Sterp team had um, several devout uh, Christians on the group, but for the most part, they were, they were agnostic, at least one agnostic. They were atheists. They were Jews. They were nominal Christians. They were interested in finding out uh, how the image got on the clock. That was their mission. And um, they've been unfairly targeted uh, over the years, ever since Go's been gone for about 15 years now. But um, he thought they were religious nuts. Other people still claim that. It's simply not true. Um, and he managed, with the help of at least one church official, to get Sterp eliminated not only from the C14 test, but all the other 
25 tests as well, which was just a huge mistake. Um, STIRP knew the most about the shroud. They had expertise in, in, in most of the areas. Um, and, and STIRP should have been allowed to um, lend their expertise and they were not. And so the C14 labs took one bad sample. They took, they gave it to three different labs. There's been several peer reviewed articles that question the, the statistics that they gave out. They were originally asked for um, the raw data right after the experiment, which is typical in, in scientific experiments. They refused to give the data, which is suspicious. Yeah. And that was only released uh, because of a Freedom of Information Act uh, requested by a French researcher. And once they were released, um, it confirmed even more that the data that the, the labs released just there's something suspect about the the numbers that they gave out and um, as I say they they may have gotten close to the date uh, if there's a reweave in there but there were just my stances there was there was just so many um, mistakes and and lack of rigor in the scientific experiment that whatever they came up with I don't think you can trust I, I just think you pretty much have to throw out the whole the whole ball uh, of, of information they gathered. Yeah, it, and and that's kind of what I uh, gathered as I was reading through your notes, and and also a bunch of other papers. That, uh, and and also, uh, how can you? For, for me, um, I do a lot of data and analytics on the uh, in my own business, but um, <clears throat> you have to look at things in multiple ways, and you have to then almost triangulate into it. And if one of them is wrong, or not wrong, but different, it doesn't necessarily mean that the other 25 are wrong. It, yeah. And so you have to look at all of them and then and always go back and test your assumptions on one that might be an outlier. And uh, and so, um, you know, and so the radiocarbon dating, I, so many people thought that that was the, you know, the be all to end all. And yet, yep. uh, to your point, uh, it could easily be wrong. And, and, there, and you know, in reading your book, I was just, I, I was laughing at how uh, how poor the scientific rigor was and even how they you know they were taking videos of the sample taking and then they turned the cameras off and turned them back on and then distributed things and and then they told about the you know the control they told them the age of the controls i was uh, <laughs> it's just just amazing just absolutely amazing so um uh, you know, the other thing, too, uh, on um, I, I, I enjoyed uh, Ray Rogers. I was reading some stuff on him uh, a couple months ago. And and one of the things that his test, which I don't know why wouldn't be just as rigorous as uh, the radiocarbon dating. Radiocarbon dating is basically a chemical test. And he was doing a chemical test and he was looking at the vanillin and the lignin. Right. And, and that decays just like uh, carbon 14 does. And, um, uh, you know, and so his, that result, it's a chemical result. It shows that it's a totally different age. And, and uh, you know, so why wouldn't that be just as, as valid as any, anything else? So, uh, but I do like your story. So uh, did you work with uh, Ray Rogers much at all or? Um, I never met him in person, but Sue and I, once he thought that we were right on our theory, we did uh, communicate with him quite a bit um, via email. And uh, in my first book, um, Wrapped Up in the Shroud, um, I have an appendix of uh, a lot of the emails that, that we shared with him. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I uh, and I enjoyed reading some of the stuff on that. Uh, so it, I guess uh, moving forward now, it's been almost 40 years and it's kind of like the Israelites in the desert being there 40 years. Uh, what do you see as uh, a possibility, probability that a, a repeat of the radiocarbon testing uh, taking place? Do you think mm -hmm. that'll happen or do you think that's now out for a longer uh, time? Now? There are a couple issues related to that. Um, first one is that because the first one went so badly, um, some people are are cautious or reluctant to want to do another one. Um, and then a, a kind of a, a corollary to that is that there have been new dating methods, other methods that could possibly be used. There's an Italian scientist that has done some mechanical and, and other chemical tests, and he believes that his tests um, show that the the shroud could date to the first century. A similar problem with, with these would be what, what I mentioned uh, about the AMS method in, in 1988 being only 11 years old. These are relatively new methods as well, and it's probably not far enough along to to know, uh, to, to gauge that it's mm -hmm. probably authentic enough to accept. So maybe a few years down the road um, that they'll have more uh, data to back it up. And then if they do do a test, uh, the dates might be more uh, reliable than than mm -hmm. what C14 can even do. Are those, the other, are those destructive tests as well, or do they, uh, are they not? Um, well, the way they, the, the, the Italian scientist did it, he, he used other textiles um, and, and did some controls with those and then extrapolated um, mm. to, to images uh, or to fibers on the shroud. Mm. Um, so we're not, you know, there, there have been no new, new samples taken um, from the shroud. Um, it, it's just a shame that they sit on it because science and technology has, has advanced light years since 1978. And there's just the sky's the limit in terms of what they could find. Um, and of course the other issue is permission from the church and um you know some of us in the shroud um, field have have contacts with um italian uh, researchers in in rome and italy and the word is uh word on the street as they say is that um there will be no new testing uh with pope francis now he's a he's got a background in chemistry I and mean, i would think he would be uh, possibly one to want to see new chemical testing, but you know, but obviously he's got a lot on his plate. There are a lot, there are a lot of other problems to deal with, of course. But you know, my take is that you know the shroud was allowed to be tested in 1978, uh, and some great data was taken, and we're still using that today. It needs to be updated. I think the shroud, the church screwed up the 1988 test. Then also there was, um, they did a secret quote uh, restoration in 2002, which upset people because they didn't um, consult other experts around the world. They just went around and went ahead and did it. And um, so I think, you know, they've, 
they really need to make up for, I feel, their mistakes in, in 88 and 2002 and let some new testing be done. Um, so at this point, I think we're still looking, um, you know, probably another 10 or 20 years possibly before Mm. Um, any new testing is done. Now we will have another public exposition of the shroud in 2025. Um, the one, the the STIRP study in 1978 was done in conjunction with the 78 exhibition. Um, I don't know if that's going to be a factor in terms of uh, if they're going to tie it with a, another exposition in the future or not. But I really do feel that the church owes, owes it to the world to to allow the shroud to be tested. I believe the shroud belongs to the world and not yeah. not just the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with that. It uh, it certainly is uh, it, it is to you know part of the world and and uh, what an event. Um, well, I've got to. Uh, we're about end end of our time here, and uh, didn't want to close, but. Um, where can someone pick up your book? Where can I? Uh, where can they buy your 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 latest book? Uh, both of my books are available on Amazon. If you do uh, an author search on uh, Joseph G. Marino, uh, both books will come up. And um, as I say, uh, a bonus with the um, the the C fourteen book is that um, I list in the preface, I believe. Uh, the URL for my website um, where, where people can check out the um, the 80 new entries that I've added. And I've also, anybody that buys a print copy can email me and I will send them the electronic version of the book. And where that comes in handy is if with the long URLs, instead of having to type it manually from the book into your browser, you could go to your electronic version and just copy and paste it and that, that will save some time. And it's easier for, you know, if you want to do searching. I mean, the, the book does have an index, but um, you would have the added uh, bonus of, of electronic searching uh, the texts yeah. as well. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And uh, thank you for that. So I, uh, now that you mentioned that, I'm gonna, uh, <laughs> I'll need to get that link because it, it does uh, sound like it would be very helpful. So uh, anyway, thank you so much, uh, uh, Joe. I really appreciate it and uh, uh, potentially look forward to doing this again and really uh, appreciate your time today and, uh, and great insights and, and love your insights, not only on the Carbon 14, but on the Shroud and on the politics and the church. And hopefully at some point, maybe in 10 years and maybe when the Israelites or the Shroudists get out of the desert, then we'll, be, we'll have a new round of testing on it and be able to uh, hopefully debunk that uh, that one test and come up with uh, other tests that are going to be more reliable and more uh, and, and, and just better uh, to be able to prove that the, the shroud is truly authentic. Uh, one little story before I close, one of the things that I think is one of the most joyous events for me is we do at our church, we do a Christmas and the uh, a Christmas uh, service and we do an Easter service and on both of those we have all of the ages of kids singing and there is no nothing more more fun and joyous than that and when i think about the shroud as being the the only witness to the resurrection the actual resurrection of jesus christ that's a, a really a, a very joyous thing mm. so um 
with that, uh, again, thank you, Joe. And uh, we'll uh, go from there. And uh, so glad you were able to listen and be part of this uh, next episode of the backstory of the Shroud of Turin. Well, thanks, guys. I, I enjoyed it and I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you.